welcome to the Gathering Place Church weekly podcast. We hope today's message ignites, equips, and challenges you to live out your Christian faith and to bring healing to a broken world. This Christmas season, we ponder, we celebrate what the fathers would call of the church a magnificent mystery. And this magnificent mystery is this, it's God becoming a man, God taking on flesh, that the God of the wonders who holds the galaxies, who holds the cosmos together, came as a little seed came as a baby and changed everything. And when you just close your eyes for a moment and there's something so holy and beautiful about when you just lift up the majesty of Jesus and you think of his awe and his wonder, that this God who knows no limitations, who knows no boundaries, who knows no borders, says, I am now confining myself is a seed in the womb of a virgin. And right there will blow your mind. And as you think of this mystery today, the church would even say when there's mystery involved, it should thrust you into worship. And if we're not careful, I think the reason we love Christmas is it because it inflicts and it uh, injects that awe and that wonder and that mystery. Because this world is quick to take the awe and wonder of who Jesus is and just kill things in you, get you bitter, get you unforgiving, where you don't dream anymore. You don't think God is bigger than your circumstances anymore. And there's something so powerful that at the core, of what the incarnation is, God putting on flesh in the person of Jesus, is it gets you in a place and it orients your thinking, it orients your life and your worship that God is bigger than I can even put words to. And this is a holy God. So Jesus, we ask that as you are a covenant-keeping God, the same God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the same God of Mary, and if you can catch this, that he puts favor on the lowly. He does not put favor on the prideful. He does not put favor on the egotistical. His favor touches the lowly. So Jesus, we humble our hearts. We take the lowly path of where wisdom is found And we ask that your favor would go before us. Your favor would touch us today. Not favor to get something materialistic, but favor of peace, favor of joy, favor of your goodness, your kindness, and your mercy today. Father, we thank you that you put on flesh, that you dealt every temptation, every blow known to man and you did not sin. That you're the perfect one, the holy one, the anointed one. 
that we place our hope. Our hope is not in some land. Our hope is not in some thing. Our hope is not in a what, but it is in a who. And that person is Jesus Christ, the Galilean. Jesus Christ of Nazareth, the Son of God. We thank you, Jesus. We love you. And we position our hearts toward this great majestic mystery today. The incarnation of Jesus. We love you. Your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Will you may be seated. Were you blessed today in a time of worship? Pray your heart was moved. And uh, if your babies begin to move, we got our TV working in the lobby today where you can let them cry, let them scream, and um, you can still be a part of the service. I'll always say, though, uh, a church alive is worth the drive, and it should sound like a jungle of babies when there's life. So I'd rather have screaming and crying and have life than have no life, and we're all a bunch of pew potatoes, right? So, um, man, it's, it's such a good season, and, and I love the Christmas season. I know many of you do, and there's something about being in God's house during this time when there's hustle and bustle and gifts and spending and breaking budgets and breaking backs and when you can just get your focus back right of what it's all about. And today, uh, if you're taking notes, you can title the sermon, uh, The Incarnation of Jesus is what we're going to be looking at today. And as we get into the incarnation, it can be simply defined as this is God puts on flesh. And there's this part in Scripture uh, where Philip, he asks, well, who is the Father? How do we know who the Father is? And his reply is, Jesus' reply is, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. You see, Jesus perfectly reveals the Father. And if you want to know what he is like, and if you want to know what the Holy Spirit is like, you look no further than the person of Jesus. And there's great chaos and confusion that exists in the plains of the church of trying to redefine who God is, trying to redefine who the Holy Spirit is. And a lot of what you see today does not look like Jesus. And as we look into the future of this church, I will never defer or edit or change or preach anything that does not look like the word made flesh. So you got to get in this order right in the incarnation, is that it wasn't the flesh became the word. The word existed before the flesh. It was the word that became flesh. And so the word has existed. The word, even if you want to put another mystery between your ears, is Jesus was slain, the scripture says, before the foundations of the world. If you even want to get into Jesus, we actually see in the Old Testament before his, uh, what would be known as the pre-incarnate Christ. Before he put on flesh, remember incarnation is putting on flesh. So you can even see, um, the, the scriptures will teach that when God walked in the cool of the day with Adam and Eve in the garden, it's the pre-incarnate Christ. The fourth man in the fire with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego would be the pre-incarnate Christ. And the, and the portion of scripture with Samuel, when, he kept, uh, when Samuel kept hearing a voice and kept getting poked and then kept going and say, did you wake me up? The pre-incarnate Christ would be seen. 
And when you get into the beauty that of the old and the new, the first and the second covenant, even as we sing, you are the same God, it's very important that you're not seeing two versions of God in the old and new. You were seeing the same God, but we didn't always know that till Jesus came, and now we perfectly see the Father through Christ. And it's just a mystery that should push you into a place of worship, of wanting to fall on your face, of being overwhelmed of how good your God is and how no detail is left out, and it all points to Jesus. If you turn to the scripture, Romans 5.15 will remind you that he is a covenant-keeping God. It says this, but the free gifts is not like the offense, but if by the one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to many. You know, as you think of the covenant, that the enemy, your spiritual enemy, Satan, is always after the covenant that we've made with God, after the body of Christ, after uh, you even see that the scene Jesus comes into the world there was decrees and demands to kill babies, right? To try to stop the seed from coming forth. You'll even see in the covenant when Jesus is instituting the new covenant at the Last Supper before his passion, Judas knew what he was about to do. And when you put things in linear and in the timeline, think of it for a minute. As, Jesus, as Judas is leaving the Last Supper table, and he is heading to the Pharisees to get his 30 pieces of silver, at some point you would see, and you could even speculate, after his feet were just washed and made clean by Jesus, here is Judas walking with clean feet, saying, here I am, just made clean, is a representation and symbol of this covenant about to betray my Lord. Could you imagine just getting your feet washed by Jesus and now heading to betray the one who just made you clean. You see, even in that, the enemy was after, as the covenant was being instituted, to take it, to rob it, and to try to stop it. But what you're gonna see today is there is a wisdom of God that will astound the wise, that will astound the knowledgeable. But the wisdom of God is only found in that which is lowly and that which is humble. Every punch that Jesus took at the enemy didn't come in this big majestic kingdom that, the, that everyone could see. It didn't come from a place of, of being on top and being first place. It came and it suckered punched the enemy through the lowly things. We'll see in Hebrews today that we even know that death was defeated by death. The enemy thought he had Jesus at the cross when he took his last breath and said, I finally got him, the son of God is killed. But Jesus disguised himself in death and went into the underworld, took the, key, took the keys of Satan and once and for all defeated death by death. That's wisdom that is, is a mystery. And you're gonna see that Paul teaches this, Jesus teaches it, that wisdom is not just I close my eyes and I imagine of how I get wise, wisdom is a person. And wisdom is found in a person, and his name is Jesus. So if you wanna be wise, and you wanna know the will of God, you've got to cling to the person of wisdom, which is Jesus. And I'm afraid that 
there's so many of us, so many churches that no longer cling to Jesus. We cling to things that will make us better, cling to things that are, will promote us, get us some self-help, but we never cling to the person. And I, and I heard it said this way, and Bree and I were talking about this. If you were so bound and in bondage to something for years, years and years and years, fighting the same things, and you're believing for deliverance, you're believing for freedom, but you can never break through, and you begin to say things like this, I'll never be free until I die. What you were declaring is that death will be your savior, not Jesus Christ. But how many of us, we might never say that, but that's how we live, that there's certain hidden sins, secret sins, there's things that we're fighting, and we just have this mindset that I can never truly be set free, that death will be the only thing that can set me free. Well, you are greatly limiting the power of God and the wisdom of God that you leaving your natural body is not the thing that is gonna set you free. But there's power and deliverance available for you. And all of this connects back. If Jesus never took, or if God never took on a body in Christ, then none of this would be fulfilled. So he is a covenant-keeping God. Hebrews 2.17 speaks of that he uh, came down and was like us in every way. If you ever think, if someone tells you or you get in the space that Jesus just doesn't get me, he doesn't get what I'm working through, you've never read this. Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. He became just like us in every way. And what we begin to think, well, he's has divinity. He's the son of God. He really didn't feel that flog at the cross or when he says things like he thirsts at the woman at the well or he, when he says he thirsts on the cross that he's speaking something symbolically. No, he had flesh like you and I and he actually did thirst. He actually did feel the pain of Judas's kiss of being stabbed in the back when Judas betrayed him. He's been through everything that you and I have. And he is the most relatable savior even to the point that he chose to become a seed in the womb of the virgin. Chose to become a, a baby, the most vulnerable understanding of a human being, a baby that cannot care for himself, that cannot take care of themselves, but is now reliant on the nurturing of parents. He, he from beginning to end, endured it all and has seen it all but he did not sin. And this is so important because where I'm getting at today, and this is the big question you will always have to answer every day of your life, and it's this. What or who will satisfy me? And if it's a what, you already got it wrong. I got it wrong. Because a what will never satisfy you. More money, more stuff, better job, better family, never satisfy you but it is a who that will forever satisfy you. And until you get that right, you'll keep grabbing at the wind. You'll keep ending up in the same cycle. So in this whole positioning of the incarnation of God putting on flesh, he answers that this is now the who, God in the flesh, where you can get things right, keep things right, and truly be satisfied in your soul and know a, con know a contentment that no man can ever teach you or give you. And it's found in a who and in a person, and his name is Jesus. Jesus is not some great idea. God did not shout that he loves you from heaven. He sent the body. He sent his son, 
and he paid for it in blood. He shed his blood to show you and not just tell you, but to give you the greatest gift of all. Genesis 3.15, and you can go back in the Easter message, but you've got to start as we've been looking at the incarnation of Christ. We looked at the gospel last week, and we had to kind of answer the question of what the gospel isn't to truly understand what it is. Because there's a lot of gospels. There's a lot of versions and variations of the gospel. And you've got to cling to the true gospel, again, which is a person perfectly revealed in Jesus. The gospel is a person, not a formula. So if you want to know where the gospel starts, it's not in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's not even in the prophets. And what you're about to find out and what you're about to see is that the first person to ever declare the gospel was the Father. And this is mind-blowing. And what you've got to see today, and really this sets up, if you get Genesis 3 right, then you'll get everything else right. Look what it says. It says, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed, you see all caps here, but you look at your paper scriptures, you'll see the second seed you see here is capital S, speaking of Jesus. And so, and between your seed and her seed, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So it speaks of, in bringing it up to speed, there's our first screamer today, God bless him. Probably one of my kids. I'll take the blow. So what you'll see here, um, I can break focus pretty quick, just so you know. What you're going to see here is in this bruising, God, as he looked upon his creation who fell into sin, and as sin entered into the world, there already had to be a remedy at work. And look how quickly this capital S seed is already spoken of by the Father. And then what all the prophets will pull from, what the gospels will declare and proclaim, because you've got to remember, we established this last week, what is the gospel? It is a declaration of victory by Jesus over sin, over death, and over demons. When you are living a gospel-centered life, you will have victory over sin. You will no longer fear death. You understand death is just a doorway. Death is you simply closing your eyes. When Jesus even speaks of death, if I can go on a rabbit trail for a minute, when he looks at Lazarus, he says, wake up or get up in more of of an understanding that he is asleep. He is not dead because you cannot kill a Christian. You leave your body, but your soul lives on forever and you will get a resurrected body one day. So when you get a right understanding of death, You no longer fear it because you can't kill me. I live on. And if you can rightly order your life around not fearing the day of your death, a thousand other fears fall off right behind it. We saw in in, in 2020 with the the pandemic and plandemic, we saw that it wasn't just fear over a little parasite or a little virus of COVID. We saw our country come front and center to have to face their own mortality and have to face the fear of death. I'm telling you, when you get people outside of rightly understanding this, you're always thinking about that day and you can fear of that day and and what's important and what's not important. But when you can be settled and have a peace and understand 
that you are just simply closing your eyes and it is a doorway into eternity with your father and then you will have a resurrected body again, 1 Corinthians 15, you no longer fear it. So Jesus says in Genesis 3.15 that a seed is coming and this seed is culminated in the incarnation when the Holy Spirit overshadows Mary and a seed is put in the womb of a virgin. And if you want to think how lowly he gets, we think a baby, Jake over here, that's pretty low. But how much lower is he started in the form of a seed? Look at the seedling phase of anything you want to grow. You never know if, it's, if you're going to actually get to the place of where it can begin to take on life, a plant or whatever you see. But you got to see that this is, the fathers would call it the proto, which means first in the Greek, Evangelion, which means gospel, it is the first gospel declared by the Father himself that a seed is coming, and his name is Jesus, and he'll put a blow to the enemy. You may think that he crushes the Son of God at the cross, but ultimately he delivers the blow to the head where the enemy only can deliver the blow to the heel. I'll take the crushing over the head over the blow to the heel. You even look at the creation account in the first three days, God is putting things in order. And in the next, in the following three days, he's putting life within that order. The thing you need to understand about our heavenly father and about your God is he creates order, but he does just not put form and order around you. He wants to fill that which he orders with the life of God. Because on the flip side, you can have all the life, but if you don't have order, you have chaos. Because the world before it was created, the Trinity came together and created. And everything they created was good, good, good. And when they got to man, it was very good. But what you've got to see is before there was creation, the earth was formless and without void. And before you ever come to Christ, your life is formless and without any kind of form. And there's chaos at the deepest part of who you are. But when Christ gets on the scene and that seed begins to bloom in your salvation, everything begins to change. Your life is no longer barren. You know, when you see even the mercy of God, and as we look at creation, we've got to see this, and then we'll say Merry Christmas, and we'll get to Romans, and we'll look at the incarnation, but you've got to set all of this up because the gospel is right here. And the seed of the incarnation that's coming, you've got to see this is where it all starts. So when Adam and Eve sin. God's mode and God's remedy of when he sends them out of the Garden of Eden is not an angry God like an angry parent you may picture when their kids mess up, they get a belt whipping, and then they get sent to their room to scream and cry. I think a lot of us get a picture of an angry God in the Garden who now, because they messed up, because they sin, they're now banished and relationship is broken. You see, what you're about to see in the picture of God, and you can go and read this on your own time, is right in the garden is an animal is kill, killed by God and skin is put on Adam and Eve. Several things are happening here. Right off the bat, we're seeing as this animal is killed, Adam and Eve had never seen death. They don't, have, they don't remember when they were created. They have no recollection or picture of what death looks like. So the first death we see of an animal is right there in the garden, and, and Adam is getting a picture of what death is. And it says that God takes the skin and the blood of that animal and wraps it around Adam and Eve. 
Because at the end of the day, Adam was content going on without God, but God was saying, I'm wrapping you in skin and blood because I am not letting you go without me. So right here you see the blood and you see the skin covering. Isn't this amazing when you really see it in the way it should be seen? God is not some angry God banishing his children out of the garden. You see, God is coming up with a remedy in what you see in Genesis 3.15 when you go and you read of the skin and the blood. And in this remedy, it is to protect them. And even putting death, death came into the scene where now they had incorruptibility, right? They wouldn't die in the garden and in fellowship. But now death is known and death is now their portion that one day Adam and Eve and their body would die. Death in one sense was not a curse, but was a remedy so they would not have to live in a sinless, in a sinful body for eternity. But that there would be reprieve and be relief. So you've got to see the remedy and mode of what God is creating here is, is so powerful. I could probably preach six hours right here. We probably got a podcast on this that's coming, so get ready. So when you begin to see that the Father is the first to declare the gospel, you're going to see a silver lining and even we'll see a scarlet cord that goes from beginning to end. That God has one covenant people beautifully connected by the cross. So we see even in understanding wisdom and asking the question of what or who satisfies you is we've got to attain this wisdom, but understanding that this wisdom is found in the lowly. It's not found on the mountaintops. It's not found in the big things. And, and you've got to understand that this wisdom is found in a very certain place, in a very certain attitude and attribute of who Jesus is. When you go to the nativity, here's where you see the beautiful parallels and symbolism of the resurrection and of the incarnation. So we're gonna look at this for a minute. So you would see, uh, if you get a real reading, even if you go to Israel, you would see that as we see kind of in the uh, modern understanding of Jesus born in a stable, it would actually be more of a cave. It would be in the ground. And this cave at the incarnation when Christ is born is to represent in the resurrection when Christ rose in a garden tomb that he came out from the earth, that he started in a cave in the earth, in a manger. And if, if you look at the early symbolism of this in the early church, you would see that in the swaddling clothes of the Christ child, it would represent that of grave clothes. Because we ultimately know what Jesus' mission and purpose is in the earth. And so, as you understand in the gospel story, it's always connecting the incarnation and the resurrection of Christ together. And as you see Jesus, known as the second or last Adam, and we see our first parents, Adam and Eve, Jesus undoes and restores everything that Adam lost. That Jesus longs to put the true paradise, known as Eden, back into your life. And that Eden isn't some place, but it's found right between your chest in a relationship with Jesus. You have to think of it this way too. It was um, at, the no at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that they took the fruit of a tree that was alive and it caused death. 
But Jesus, who hung on a dead tree and died, brought us life. And when you begin to see all of the parallels and symbolisms between the two, you'll see that it is this beautiful picture of God restoring and reconciling everything that Adam had lost. That he is the last Adam, he is the true and better Adam, and he brings it all together. If you want to think of it this way too, this will kind of blow your mind. As a result of the curse, it says that Adam would work by the sweat of his brow. Come on, men, you have worked by the sweat of your brow before? What you'll find is before the curse happened, it said that Adam didn't work the garden, he tended the garden. And it's really popular right now, too, to cry out for revival. That we want to see God move, we want to see revival happen. But when you think of in the place of of paradise in Eden, Adam never had to cry out for rain because he lived in the dew. And when you think of always crying out for God to move, always crying out for God to do, if you can live in the dew, you won't need to cry out for the rain. And there's a part of where we want God to just fix it all and kind of put his hand on it and make it happen, where he's saying true revival is a person and it's Jesus, and if you live close and near and cling to him, you'll have revival. It'll be consistent, and it'll be your portion. Am I stepping on any toes right now? So we know that a man lost it in Adam, and a man had to come and win it all back. And that man was Jesus. All right, say Merry Christmas. We're going to Romans now. All right, Romans 1, 3 through 4 says this. It says, concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. We're gonna get into and we're gonna see that the reason Jesus had to come is because blood and goats could not, the sacrifice of blood and goats in the first old covenant could not cleanse the conscious. And it was this everyday yearly cycle you had to, to sacrifice, make the sacrifice, and then your sins you know, would be forgiven in the old covenant. But even the blood of bulls and goats, of dumb animals essentially, it never cleansed your conscience of sin. Your conscience was still seared by sin. But Jesus, he comes and he works from the inside out. And if you've truly experienced him, he puts peace in your mind He puts peace in your heart. He just doesn't cover you, but he comes to the deepest parts of you and heals every wound that is in the inside of your head, heart, and on your hands. Thank God for Jesus. So he does what the blood of goats, sheep, couldn't do. And we know he had to bleed, and this is where it says that he has to come born of the seed of David according of the flesh and that he was declared to be the son of God. And the thing I love and the thing we've got to remember, if you even think of how jacked up David is and what is in the seed of David, what comes through the line of David, 
you should be thankful in what the gospel you can never leave out is Jesus came to identify with the worst, the most lost, and the most broken parts of who we are. And when you begin to read the genealogy of Jesus, you shouldn't fall asleep. You should worship through it because you can see yourself in that genealogy. That there's not just one big pure cord from beginning to end, but there's a scarlet cord in there. Read about Rahab. Who's in the seed? Who's in the line? So you've got to understand that the gospel isn't this thing that doesn't meet you where you're at. It's the very thing that says, I love you as you are. But understand this, when God's grace and mercy meets you where you are, the response is, I am forever changed by it. I just don't say in my junk and in my funk and in my sin, but it should provoke the greatest response and change of now where we say and where we hear, just like we do in the book of Acts and all the gospels, when they said, what must I do to be saved? It was a response to hearing about this Jesus and about this gospel. Everything changes. God is not the one who needs to change because he's some angry God and God needs therapy with us. We're the ones that have to conform into the image of God. We have to change. We have to bear our cross and you'll see the power of God come alive in your life. Amen. So he comes through this seed. I'm telling you, some of you are gonna worship when you read Matthew 1 and all these lineages of, of where Jesus came from because it changes everything. John 1.14, you know this, it says this, and the word became flesh and it dwelt among us and we beheld his glory and the glory as of the only begotten of the father, praise God, he was full of grace and full of truth. Don't separate the two. Full of grace and truth. Grace should always lead you to the truth. Not to excuses, not to passivity, but it should always lead you to the truth. Again, the gospel is a declaration of victory over sin, over death, and over demons. When you are living an active Christian walk in the gospel, powered by the gospel, you will be actively overcoming sin. You'll be actively overcoming things that wanna bring death to your family, death to your marriage, and you will be actively overcoming the demonic. Praise God, you can fight in the spirit because you don't fight against flesh and blood. You fight against spirits, principalities, powers, darkness, rulers of this world, that you have strategies in Christ to take on your enemy. In Jesus' name. As you can tell, this is no ordinary baby. This is no ordinary seed. Romans 9, 5 says, of whom are the fathers and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came who is overall an eternally blessed God. Amen. You know, these things we're talking about are the ABCs of the faith. And when you get them right, they begin to hit like sledgehammers. You see, the thing that the enemy is scared of is when you get these things right. And when the enemy begins to knock on your door, it crouches out the door. If you remind him of the seed, and if you remind him of his death and of his defeat, that is the very place you will find victory over the enemy. Remind him of his future when he brings up your past. Remind him of his present that he is already defeated. You should speak of the enemy in one ounce and ponder limitlessly on the power of God. But how much does it get lopsided? Where we think, God, we can't overcome, we can't conquer my devils, higher levels, bigger devils, and 
we give the enemy way too much credit. I'm telling you, you'll find victory when you begin to put him in his place and you never break focus of this God-man and of this Christ. You never stop clinging to Jesus because that's where it's found. You go into when uh, the one who loved Jesus, Mary, when she was the first to come on to the scene that the tombstone had been rolled away in the garden tomb. Mary wanted to do one thing when she saw him. First, she didn't even recognize him. Remember, she mistaken him as a gardener. And understand that was not put there by mistake, but it was put there very purposefully because of this is a picture of Jesus and his resurrected body. He is that of a gardener of how he acts on our behalf and what this relationship with him looks like. It looks like pruning. It looks like tending. Not all of this working to get God's attention in your life, to get God to notice you, to get God's presence to start moving on your behalf. If you tend, he will be there. And what you'll see in him being a gardener coming out of that tomb, it was the Virgin Mary that birthed him, but it was the one who loved him known as Mary who wanted to cling to him. And what you have to see today, the way that you're going to grow in your walk with God, it comes through a fierce clinging to him. And it even says, if you read the account, that Mary wanted to cling to him, and Jesus said, it's not the time yet. (laughs) I've got to go ascend to the Father. There's some business that has to happen. But he's giving the picture that to have a successful Christian life, it comes through clinging to him and holding tight to him and fixating upon him and never letting go. Can we fixate more this Christmas season and not let go of him? Again, Jesus is the person that all of this comes through. It's not a magical formula. It's not charismatic Olympic games. It's not all of these things to try to get God's attention. It is tending to the garden. It is very sober. It is very peaceful. It is very wisdom that is found lowly, and it astounds the wise. 1 John 4, 2. You still with me? It says this, by this you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh of God. You've got to understand when you confess Jesus Christ, you're not confessing a first and a last name. And I follow that first and last name. You are confessing, and this would be um, what in the early church for centuries, what they would debate on this flesh and this incarnation. And when you confess that Jesus Christ actually came in the flesh, you are confessing Yeshua, you are confessing Yahweh, the God who saves, and Yeshua, Jesus Christ, Jehovah, the anointed one, that this name, when you utter it, can make mountains move, can make the thunder pale in comparison to the rumble that should come from his name when it's spoken. But how flippantly do we throw the name of Jesus around? When it says, when you confess that he came in the flesh, you are confessing that God became a man and this, this man is majestic, this man is redeemer, this man is what saves and sets and holds the world. He is the God of wonders. When you confess his name, you are declaring something more than just a first and a last name. So don't flippantly hold his name in your mouth. Don't flippantly use his name. I think we could all always use a little check on that. You know, I love it 
the river Jordan when Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist. It says, when the Holy Spirit descended and it came on Jesus, and it says something very important in the next text, if you go and read it, it said it rested on him. And so the same spirit that rested on Jesus, which is the Holy Spirit, is what every one of us is then baptized into. So if you want to know what a true spirit-filled life looks like, it looks like the spirit that is resting on Jesus. Not some imaginative thing you've built up in your head, not what somebody's told you, not what you've seen on camera from a, a wacky church service. That is not the spirit. It looks like Jesus. And if it doesn't look like Jesus, you question it. I've seen too many people get hurt when someone comes up and says, I'm got a word and the spirit gave me and it wrecks their life because they were more concerned about how it made them feel than what they were speaking into the life of the person if I can be blunt and honest we flippantly just throw this thing around when the Holy Spirit should look like Jesus in every instance in the way of Jesus you read the Beatitudes it's extreme love of enemies it's meekness how many times when you see someone full of the Spirit, it doesn't look meek, doesn't look humble. And again, we saying, let's shake up the ground of all of our traditions and religions. Well, I'm shaking it right now. Bad theology hurts people. Bad theology will not be preached here, tolerated here, because it hurts you. And we've got to see the gospel and what it truly is and who it is. And we have to change accordingly not do what we feel, not do what sounds good, what sells books and gets clicks and lights and subscribers. That's not who we're gonna be. All right, Hebrews 1, say Merry Christmas again. <laughs> All right, God's supreme revelation. We see God who at various times and in various ways spoke in time passed to the fathers by the prophets. Verse two, has in these last days spoken to us by his son. This is very important. If you wanna know what the main message of our father, if you wanna know the last message of our father, it's Jesus. Verse two again, he has spoken in these last days, spoken by his son whom he has appointed heir of all things through whom also he made the worlds. As we saw in Genesis 3.15, the father cannot wait to talk about the seed. He cannot wait to talk about the son. And what Hebrews tells us here, that in the last days, it will be the son whom he talks of, of whom he reveals, of who he is all about. And when you look of how off-centered and off-track so much of church has gotten off the person of Jesus, what if we brought it all back to Jesus and see what Jesus could actually do? Verse three, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person upholding all things by the word of his power that he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the, of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels and he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. Amen. Jesus is the highest name. He is the name above all names. He's given a name that at that name, every knee should bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord.
Galatians 4.4 4 says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the word. This is to go right back into the creation story that there is a new creation at work here, John is telling us. That in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. Isaiah 7.14, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. If you want a sign, if you want to wonder, and you want a miracle this Christmas, here is your sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and he shall call his name Emmanuel. God with us. The greatest sign, wonder, and miracle is that God can live right in your chest. That you are a temple of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus. And he comes to dwell in you, with you and live with you and to teach you and to lead you into all truth, to change and to cleanse and to purify your life, to make you holy as he is holy. This is the greatest gift. And he sent a sign so we wouldn't miss it. But it comes as a seed. And how many times do we miss the seedlings of our life because we're looking for the platforms, we're looking for the grander things, we're looking for the big things when he's saying, if you look to the seed and you cling to the seed, you'll find what you need. Genesis 22.8, and Abraham said, my son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. So the two of them, speaking of, they climbed Mount Moriah, Abraham and Isaac. It's a funny story. Isaac never knew as he's carrying the wood. You wonder, well, where's the sacrifice? And there they are walking up and he's carrying the wood. To not get too deep into that story, what you're gonna see here, what did God provide is Abraham had his knife in the air ready to follow God all the way through. What was provided in the thicket? It was a ram. Say ram. And as the ram was provided, if you see here, God said that he would provide a lamb, but it was not the appointed time for the lamb because the lamb would come through the seed of Israel. But what you saw is a ram was provided. It would be, if you understand, ooh lambs and sheep and rams. Rams are adult male sheep. Lambs are baby sheep. A baby wasn't to be the part that's to die on the cross. The seed had to grow. But the ram being provided is a picture of the God-man in the flesh, in the fullness of time, when the passion was to, to be his portion. So you can even see all the way with Abraham that there is a lamb, that there is a seed who's coming. And when you get all into understanding God in, in a relationship is seen and understood as a lamb, it will change everything. Even in Revelation, you would see that we are worshiping the lamb who sits on the throne. John 1.29, and this was John the Baptist as he saw Jesus coming. He said, in the next day when he saw Jesus coming toward him, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the lamb that Abraham was looking for. This is the lamb that for millennia after millennia that we've looked for, hoped for. Isaiah 53 speaks of Jesus led as a lamb. Revelation 5.12, here's where we see it. Saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb. Can we just say that together? Worthy is the lamb. Your worship as Christ is ascended at the right hand of the Father, we will forever sing until he returns again. Worthy is the lamb. 
You know, Jesus, you've got to understand this too, as a lamb, as he sits at the right hand of the Father, perfectly interceding for us, he is the best intercessor and mediator we have. And he is perfectly interceding for us at the Father. In his ascended body, because he's in a body in heaven, he's not left his body, he has his resurrected body. And as you know, in the ascension, he has holes in his feet still, his hands are still pierced, and his side is still open. And when the Father looks over as he is seated on the throne, he sees the open side of Christ and mercy, that blood freely flowing out from his side, reminding him of the price of the lamb who was slain on our behalf. That that is the great place of Christ as he's sitting there praying for you, that he is worthy of all praise, of all honor, and all glory. And aren't you thankful that Jesus in his body still shows the wounds in his hand to show that we're gonna be wounded, we're gonna get messed up, we're gonna get into stupid stuff because we're like sheep who need a shepherd. Don't you always chuckle that we're seen as sheep in the scripture? And we're pretty bad sheep when we don't have a good shepherd. And so Jesus is saying, my mercy is bigger than that, my grace is bigger than that, than your stupid choices, than your dumb decisions. When you run from me, I'm still running after you. I never stop pursuing you, I never stop chasing you, I never stop coming after you. That's why the church should always be the first place you run, not the place you hide from when you send. Adam and Eve's biggest mistake is that they hid. But see, they became aware of their nakedness. It's just like when innocence, the understanding when they put figs leaves, it's innocence lost and innocence stolen by sin. And think of it this way, as a child, we have five little ones, they will run around the house naked and not think a thing. But there's gonna come an age where they'll be like, you know what, that's probably not good anymore. They become of an age and as innocence grows, it changes. Well, the same was with Adam and Eve, they realized something had changed, that innocence has been lost and sin always comes after innocence, comes to pervert you, pervert your body to steal, kill and destroy. When you see all this perversion out in the world, it's because that is the fruit of sin. It's always perversion. It doesn't care how long it takes. It will pervert anything and everything it touches. And you will want to hide. You will want to run. When the father comes to them and says, where are you? This is not who you are. You even look as you get into Exodus 12, this will change when you read all of this kosher laws and this and that and the other, that even how the lamb was to be cooked and how it was to be roasted is it was to be put on a pole and it was to be suspended between earth and the heavens and it, would, it was to be slow cooked. Well, our Savior was put on a pole and at one end hit the earth and the other end suspended toward the heavens to be a reminder that it would be this incarnate seed who would become this lamb, who would save us of our sins and would remind us that we can be free, that freedom is our portion, not bondage to sin is. 1 Corinthians 2, 6 through 8 says this, however we speak wisdom among those who are mature, yet not the wisdom of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing, this should be you and I, verse seven, but we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, 
the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory. And hear this, if they would have known this, this wisdom that was operating, then the Pharisees, those who killed Jesus, verse eight, which none of the rulers of this age knew, for if they had known this, they wouldn't have crucified the Lord of glory. The ones who should have seen it, who should have known, they didn't. So I'm telling you, there's a wisdom that we can barely even comprehend. And we should spend our life clinging to that person, clinging to that wisdom, because it will change everything about us. Hebrews 2.14, Inasmuch then as the children that have partaken of the flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil. And as we prepare to close with this, when you think of why did Jesus take on this flesh? He had, why did he have to partake of it? Well, in Hebrews 10, you'll see, and this is leading into a series in the New Year's where we're probably gonna go page by page, book by book, um, or rather page by page, chapter by chapter through the book of Hebrews and get into the richness of this covenant. So get ready, buckle up, I'll gift you a pad and paper and we'll get you a pencil because you're gonna be erasing a few things and it's gonna be good. Hebrews 10, it says, for the law having a shadow of the good things to come and not the very image of the things can never with these same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, talking of the old covenant way, for then would they not have ceased to be offered for the worshipers once purified would have no more consciousness of sins but in those sacrifices there's a reminder of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. But hear this, how Christ's death fulfills God's will. Verse five, therefore, when he came into the world, he said, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. So Christ had to partake in that body for this to be fulfilled. And burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you had no pleasure. And then I said, I have come this is very important if you want to underline this, in the volume of the book. If you think you got to throw away the Old Testament, Christ comes not just from the New Testament, he comes from the volume of the book. All the way back to the garden like we're saying today. Then I said, behold, I have come in the volume of this book for it is written of me to do your will, O God. So it's saying that death will be defeated by this wisdom, by this person of the Lord Jesus. When we see this as well, an understanding of what, what must we do to be saved? How are we to respond to this seed? We've got to understand that we have to first believe. But understand when you believe, this is good, belief is not a mental thought process. Say this again, belief is not a mental thought process. Many of our salvation understanding is, I had a mental thought process about Jesus, I'm good. Belief in the Greek would be understood as this. It is to cast the entirety of your being upon Christ. To cast the entirety of your being upon Jesus. When you believe, you throw everything in the arena. You just don't have a mental assent like, I agree, 
I'm going all in. When I believe, when I have faith, we talked about this last week, the right understanding of faith is faithfulness. I'm faithful. I just don't agree, but my life shows faithfulness to Christ. Because you're not saved into Christianity, you're saved to a person and his name is Jesus Christ. You're not saved into some system, you're saved into a person. And then understand, then Jesus then begins to build his church to teach you what it means to be saved, to stay free, to to walk in the fullness and the purposes of God for your life. It's a hospital when you get beat up and broken out there you come in and you receive truth and grace. Sin is not the inheritance of the saints. The way you know you are saved is when Jesus says, whom the Son sets free is free indeed. We fight sin, but we're not every day partaking of sin. Salvation sets you free and then keeps you free. Again, death is not your savior. Jesus is. Jesus, think of this, at the cross was stripped naked so that you and I can be clothed in glory. Psalms 88, when you even look at the cross, it speaks of the cross, of the coming cross, and it says that his eyes were so withered that this lamb, his eyes would be so withered that you wouldn't even be able to recognize his face. Imagine seeing your savior and you could not even make out that it was Jesus. You've heard me say too, and we're gonna prepare to take communion, that Jesus was tied to that whipping post. But know that he didn't have to be tied. He would have held on for your healing and taken every lash even if he wasn't tied. That's how faithful your God is, is that he will hang on, he will never let go, even if it means one more person would come into this fullness. If you'd stand with me and we'll prepare to take of the covenant today. We're gonna sing a song in a minute that we're called to be his temple, we're his people. And I pray you take such great reverence and appreciation for this seed. And if Jesus has never been rightly presented to you, Jesus is an angry, vengeful, wrathful God. You've been given a wrong gospel. And you've got to search the volume of the book and you will find this lamb. You will find this seed and it will be the most beautiful, majestic mystery you have ever seen. You see, sin came through Adam who was supposed to be priest of his home and of that garden. And he watched in the distance as Eve took the fruit, being a passive Ahab, like we talked about in Elijah. 
And as he took the fruit, as she took the fruit, sin came into the world through a meal, essentially, when the fruit was taken. Well, when Jesus instituted the new covenant, it would be a meal that would undo everything that Adam lost. This is a much greater element we take than the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil because we don't take from that tree, we eat of this tree. And every time you eat of this, you were eating of that tree. That it is the mystical meal that there is something supernatural when we gather that this is the seat and summit of your faith. It's not what you feel. It's not even what you think. It's the gospel. The gospel is not to be explained. It's to be declared. And it's to be proclaimed. Whether you believe it or not. Now, thank God it does get explained. But it's happening whether you're getting on the train or not. Whether you're following him or not. And so when you hear the gospel proclaimed, it should move you to tears. It should, the beauty of it, resonate and capture your heart that there's a capturing that begins to happen. And it's not just one time in Sunday school. It is every day of your life that Jesus capture my heart today. Capture my attitude today. My affections today. My worship today. Because if I worship the way I think, it's going to be skewed. It's going to be idolatrous. And what's an idol? It's any blending of something together. It's when you add to Jesus. It's when you add to his body. It's when you add to the incense and try to make it smell a little better, feel a little better. But when we take of this cup, it was purchased on that tree and that is real wisdom, not the morality of man which is found in the tree of knowledge of good and evil. I think many of us, we eat of that tree when we should be clinging and eating of that one telling you, wisdom is a person. If you will cling to him, he will speak to you. He will reveal perfectly himself. If you want to know who the father is, is is he angry? Is he mad? Is he schizophrenic? Want to strike me with lightning? Jesus perfectly reveals the father. God is not in a bad mood toward you. He loves you. Even at your darkest hour, in our prodigal moments, he comes running after us. But many times our head is so low and full of shame, we can't even look up and see him. You with me? So we want to come close to him. If you would just bow your head and allow the forgiveness of your sins to permeate your heart. To say, Jesus, thank you for forgiving me. Thank you for cleansing me. Worthy is that lamb. Jesus, you are worthy. You are magnificent. Thank you for coming through the seed of the woman, of the virgin. That you, the God of wonders, contained yourself in the wonder of the womb. God, we can ponder this, but understand that your grace, your mercy, it comes when we get humble, when we get low. That's where we see you. That's where we find you. you take the element of the body and if you break it it's a sign and symbol that he was broken for you 
that he would endure every temptation, every sin for you, that he would give you victory. And now in our response, we tend to that. We walk in it. We follow him closely to the point of where we cling to him. We take the body in Jesus' name. You know, the woman with the issue of blood in the gospel story, you would see that when she took to the hem of Jesus' garment and Jesus felt faith draw from him, that touch was not just a touch, but it was the very understanding of what it meant to cling. Many of us, we cling to Jesus out of insecurity. We cling to Jesus out of fear. But what if we begin to cling to him out of faith? Things can begin to change. And I pray today that as we take the cup of this covenant, that we go to Jesus in faith. This woman, she clinged to every doctor. She clinged to, to every other type of medicine that was knowledgeable and that was good. But it was not God and it was not Christ. And I'm not speaking literally. You, shouldn't, you need to take medicine. You need to do everything, all of that. I'm not speaking into that right now. But what I am saying, you have to first orderly be clung to him. Don't allow a bad doctor's report. Don't allow depression. Don't allow anxiety and fear to rob you of a touch of faith. Jesus, as we take your blood, it is the greatest blood that flows to every part of our life. We take the cup in Jesus' name of this beautiful, glorious, magnificent covenant. If you just posture your heart for a moment to worship, to ponder on this seed, We'll take a few more minutes and the team will lead us and allow the Lord to touch and to minister to you. You spoke the name Yeshua and um, I've been listening to this song so I just wanted to sing it out for a minute. Yeshua
That's the name we'll sing for all eternity. And we'll sing between now and until Yeshua, until Jesus brings us home. I'm telling you today, if you can take and rightly order yourself to this seed, to this man who put on flesh, 
that God just didn't shout that he loves you, but he put on a body, that he took every temptation, he took every pain, peril, and problem, and he absorbed it. He turned the other cheek. He called out wicked Pharisees. He turned tables, and he showed us what righteousness incarnate is all about. We love you, Jesus, and we thank you that you're the one who satisfies. You're the one who is truth and grace and gives us the fullness of all that entails. Thanks for tuning in to this week's podcast. We pray it encouraged, uplifted, and challenged you to become more like Christ. We would love to hear from you. You can email your prayer request to prayer at gpcky.com. Loving our podcast? Take a moment and like and subscribe on our YouTube channel to stay up to date with all of our new content. Thanks for listening.